Okay, this is Note Up, episode two, with your hosts, James Halliday, Michael Rogers, and myself, Isaac Schluter. James Halliday is Substack, and Michael and I use our real names, but Michael's the one with the K. <laughs> Michael spelled fucked up. Yep. So today we're going to talk about some topics in Node, the logo, browser five plugins, we were going to talk about Felix's fast or slow library, but I don't think any of the three of us are qualified to really. <laughs> we talk a little bit about Windows, the HTTP client rewrite that Michael did, uh, NPM on Windows, or rather the, the lack thereof, what the plans are there, and a little bit about the upcoming node knockout at the end of next month. So what did I say we were going to talk about? Oh, yeah, the logo. Uh, what do you guys think of the logo? <laughs> That was so non-committal. <laughs> you know, I, I, a lot of people saw the turtle and were like, wow, a turtle, that's like a, a logo for Node because it's uh, the exact opposite of what it is. Because it's slow and it just trundles along. And there's no yeah. knocking it over. It will stay up forever. <laughs> it lives forever. Well, that's yeah, why it's that got was... the rocket strapped to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a turtle that blows up occasionally. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm assuming that, that that was kind of a reference to the um, Note Up episode one, where we, we did discuss using a turtle as a logo. A turtle's a good logo for Dnode, because it's like the turtles all the way down thing, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd already drawn some turtles, so, you know, I was getting pretty good at it. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> That's a good reason to use it for a logo. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, the so Julian logo, like, people are pretty opinionated about it. Because it's something that you can be opinionated about and not actually have to build. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, if this was code that somebody wrote, there would be a bunch of forks if people actually cared this much. But since everybody's, like, an armchair designer, there's, like, a whole lot of opinion out there. Yeah, or, or I mean, if you showed that logo to a bunch of, like, you know, professional designers, they would probably have very specific things that they liked or didn't like and be able to comment on, like... I think they would just start laughing, to be honest, but... <laughs> or that, or that, yeah. But, but you know, like, you show it to a bunch of programmers, and it's like, it's like the classic thing, right? Like, design and economics, everyone can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, every, everybody I know feels fully qualified to comment on, like, you know, very nitty particulars of macroeconomics. It's like, how many countries have you run? Seriously. <laughs> you know, at zero? Because I'm pretty sure it's zero, or I would have known who you are by now. Um, I think it's similar with design. Everybody loves, you know, criticizing design. But I don't know. It kind of. I, I think it kind of works. I'm not a huge fan of it either. I think it's a little. It's a little generic and kind of uh, not generic. Like you definitely recognize it and it stands out. And you like you'll see it and you'll remember. Oh yeah, that's that silly hexagonal thing. But um, I don't know. It works. It looks. It looks techy and sci-fi and stuff. And business Actually, people understand what it means. I quite like the background that that they made for it, but yeah, the the lettering is a bit, I don't know, pretentious? <laughs> <laughs> That's an odd way to put it. <laughs> no, I, I guess I, I kind of get that. I mean, on the other hand, though, like, how many, um, how many technical, like, technology logos do you actually like? Like I, I was, I was, I sat down and I tried to think of a good one. Actually, when we were at Joint, when we were kind of going through this exercise, and there were some I liked and some I didn't, and I, I kind of sat down. and was like, 
you know, most, most technology logos kind of suck from, from my point of view. I don't think that they look very good. I, I actually rather like Python's logo, um, the new one. Like they, they revved it maybe five years ago or something, but it's really, it's quite nice. And it's and the new one's just a variation of the older one to make it look more modern. But it's it's a pretty nice logo. Yeah, and and someday when you know hexagons and and object graphs look dated and old and oh, remember when we used to do that in the twenty tens? Like then then we'll refresh it. But I mean, whatever. Yeah, I mean I think like I I don't really care because. There's going to be a bunch of official node stuff that comes out of joint that'll have this logo on it, and there's going to be a ton of community stuff where everybody's going to do their own thing, or they'll have some fancy font, or they'll do their own little logo, or they'll have their own brand identity, and that's like a pretty healthy community, really, like a, a nice yeah, diversity yeah. of people doing different things and viewing it differently. Whether we could have this really like homogenous um, like brand identity for the project that everybody has to kind of buy into, and I I don't like that as much, so. Like it, it being sort of uh, opinionated enough by somebody that other people hate it is kind of like a good thing to me, because it means that a bunch of other people are going to have their own opinions about it and not use it and do their own thing, and that's like healthy. Right. Yeah, I, I think this, I definitely. This reminds agree me a little bit of a uh, flow control, like people's opinions <laughs> regarding that. <laughs> I, well, I think flow control, like everyone who writes a flow control library, writes a flow control library before they've really done a lot of node programming. And so it's like a terrible thing that they write. <laughs> or they, and they, figure, they don't figure that out until way later after they've lived in this abstraction for a while. Uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I think the best thing, I mentioned this with the, the first OakJS, like the best thing that you can do with a flow control library is try to write as little as possible. If, if you can do all the flow control you need in 10 lines, you should just use that. Because it's going to, like you said, it's going to suck. And this way, at least, it'll be a smaller amount of suck. Yeah, I mean, I brought it up before. Like, there's all these patterns that we're still figuring out. And, like, everyone, when they first come, they go, oh, this is really hard. I don't want to write this thing over and over again. And so they live in an abstraction. And the abstraction isn't matching up against what we're finding are actually good patterns right now. Um, and, and that's really problematic. Like, people really need to just kind of live with the base API and write to that and figure it out and get comfortable with it. And then hopefully they can opt into some of the better patterns that we're going to figure out. Yep. I, I think that, uh, it, I don't know, just, just keep circling back to the, uh, to the logo, though, that um, the, the other thing I kind of dig about it, and this has sort of grown on me, is the fact that there is a lot, like that, that shape and that design, there's actually kind of a lot you can do with it. You know, it, it definitely leaves the door open for for refreshing it later on down the road in interesting ways. I was thinking like a hex wrench. You could put that on there and have some fun Ex with it. Exactly. And Node is like, it's designed to be a networking toolkit, right? Like a, like a networking Swiss Army knife, almost like a like the next generation Pearl in a way. Um, so from that point of view, yeah, like the, those little hex wrenches that you get from from uh, IKEA, it's like assembling assembling parts to make something. That's kind of a, a neat image. Anyway, I don't know. People sure do have opinions. That's the moral of that story, I think. Okay, so I guess I could talk about browser fry plugins a little bit. So this is kind of my experiment. Um, at the moment, and I'm trying to get people to write them. Uh, basically, 
they're they're sort of like you know the the client side bundling part of it. You know, with Browserify, you can do browser side requires exactly like in Node and actually reuse a lot of the same Node modules. Um, but then it also has the server side components. So like if you need to host static content or you need to like have some some minor logic and interaction with the rest of your system. So like I've got some plugins like um, a Fileify plugin that lets you like host up files browser side so you can like require a file uh, a module name and you get an object full of the, the source for all of these files. So I use that to write this Jadeify plugin that uses a Jade browser side and lets you render stuff. It's kind of crazy. Hmm. That's oh, yeah, kind of yeah, I had a silly module, Progressify, that like is just like a hand-drawn status bar. Um, that was more of like a proof of concept of this whole idea, but I'm definitely using it for um, testing. I think the the main thing that I want to see happen is just more people abstracting out all of the mess that happens with client-side code. Um, and NPM is just a really convenient way to do that right now. Yeah, it seems it seems that way. I mean, it seems like it's it's kind of gone in in an interesting direction with the client side code. I I, I never really intended or expected it to be useful for that. Um, but uh, it certainly I, I certainly don't have a problem with it. Occasionally, people ask if I have like if it's allowed or or express you know express dismay that there's client-side libraries in, in NPM, and I'm like, well, I, I told everybody they could do it. So, I mean, until it starts to be a problem, I think it's fine. There's only so many gigabytes of JavaScript out there. You could probably just host it all. And, well, like, being the, at least one of the biggest repositories of JavaScript code, it's like Node is kind of becoming its own standard of sorts. Which yeah, that's why. that's an awesome. That's an awesome direction too. Yeah, well, it's nice. That's that's what I like about it. It's not messy like a lot of other systems are. Hmm. I have a slightly different opinion of it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I think I think um, you know when you work in a sausage factory, like it's hard to look at a sausage and not think it's guts. And and it's it's slightly nicer than sausage. I just started laughing the moment that you said sausage, so I didn't I didn't even pick up the last part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I I've seen too much of Node's code. There's there's things in there you can't unsee. That's getting better though. Like I, I've seen, I've I've been in there too, and it's it's actually getting better. Like we're actually fixing it. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think the the stuff with LibUV is actually really exciting, and it's um, the exciting thing about LibUV. I think is like at, at this point. I mean, at this point, you'd pretty much be be hard pressed to find anybody in the world who has more experience doing async I/O, async network I/O across platforms than than Ryan and Bert. You know, I'm I'm sure that they do exist, but it seems like most people, um, most projects, kind of 
are developed either for Windows and then ported to Unix, or they're developed for Unix and kind of ported to Windows. And it's, it's usually in this kind of awkward way, right? And so it's, it's very exciting to see LibUV being done in a way that's actually sort of an elegant API that is easy to express and kind of translates effectively to both uh, IOCP and LibEV and LibEIO. So I think, I think pushing more stuff down is actually going to make a lot of those internals a little bit more exciting, a little bit more uh, elegant. Like, are there, are there going to be nice wrappers for all of the code that already exists that will have to be ported? Or Yeah, so a lot of it, um, obviously, if you, if you have a binding that talks to LibEv directly, that's not, that's not ever going to work on Windows. Um, but pretty much you can, in a lot of cases, you can basically replace LibEv underscore whatever with UV underscore whatever. And it's a fairly close parallel. That, that's been what I've found anyway, at least in, in the node code itself. Um, there's still like this, this fork command. There's um, like a parameter that you have to set to tell it to, live, to use UV. Um, otherwise, it won't actually use the libuv in, in Unix. It'll just go directly to libev. Um, but the plan is definitely to get off of that and to, to use libuv 100% as soon as possible. Should we talk about what libuv is? Do you think people know that? I think you covered it a lot in the last one, right? I don't know. I didn't listen to it. I, my, my voice is really terrible to listen to. I don't know how you guys can stand to be around me. <laughs> and I think, you listen, I think you described it pretty well in the last one. I think we can skip over like what libuv is. Okay, great. Yeah, so, so that's, uh, that's happening. We got a, we got a Windows build. Um, like a node.exe. As far as I can tell, programs are actually working with it. People are talking about how it how it works. So that's pretty pretty incredible, actually. Um, yeah, this should be really nice for just people who happen to be stuck on Windows still. Well, um, you know, you know, like uh, actually, a really something something like sixty percent of all servers on the internet are running Windows. I mean, it's ridiculous how just how common Windows is, and there's a lot of developers out there who are not in Silicon Valley, and uh, most of those guys are using Windows, it turns out. like Yeah, or other countries, too. I mean, the U.S., despite being the country of origin for Windows, um, like, like uh, China has insane levels of Windows usage, or like South Korea. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. And, I mean, it's a whole different, it's a whole different paradigm, right? Like, a lot of a lot of Windows users are not like when I was developing on Windows. I mean, I used the command line, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know the command line. Like on a Unix box, you just like sort of you have to go to it so much that you kind of get really used to it. And Bash is so nice, you know, or ZSH or, or even like Cache or whatever. It's compared to DOS, it's just so so nice. So you can kind of see why Windows users don't use the command line. But I mean, you still need to just have an EXE file that can like run a program and work. Yeah, I guess one thing that Node has going for it is it bundles all the core stuff into the EXE itself, which yeah. is super, super handy. Like, yeah, I mean, it's already handy that Node doesn't have like a standard 
library in the same sense as like Python, but it's just so small and so self-contained that it should be just really easy for people to drop into. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. Like you you have to download the batteries from the NPM registry, but NPM does not actually work on Windows yet, and probably won't for a while. There's there's kind of a lot to do there. Um, in general, I've tried to kind of just target the the stable versions of Node with with NPM, but I I'm on I'm on Master a lot. So usually, if there's something that's badly broken on Master, I'll I'll figure it out and fix it. Um, but yeah, like Windows is weird, man. They don't separate their paths like like if you have like the path environment variable. I learned recently that that's separated by semicolons. Semicolons, like. Because colons are in the path, so like there's there's these weird little bugs that have kind of shown up in 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 Node on Windows, and I mean we're you know fixing them as they get reported and as they as they turn up, but um, there's a lot of areas where npm kind of depends on being able to make symlinks and uh, have that just work, and it turns out that even in cases where symlinks are supported in in Windows. They're not uh, they're not quite the same. There's like weird little differences here and there, and we really want to support we really want to support uh, Windows XP and above. So that means no actual symlinks, despite the fact that they're in Windows Seven. Yeah, symlinks. I, I dealt with them a little bit in, in Python, and the differences with Python running on Windows and and uh, running on any kind of POSIX system, and symlinks really don't exist in any kind of meaningful way, and you can't rely on them. Um, that's one of the bigger differences. And I mean, a lot of the weirdness with Python is just that Python, Python is like that bad port of Windows that you were talking about where, I mean, there's just a giant fork in the whole code base that does everything differently for Windows. Um, but yeah, it's definitely no fun. Hmm. I mean, if you're going to write cross-platform applications, this is, you're just not going to be able to use symlinks, period. Just don't stop trying. <laughs> right, right. So the the plan is basically instead of um, so first of all instead of having an sh script that installs npm it's going to have to have a batch a batch file um, and hopefully I can get somebody else to write it like if you're listening to this write a batch script to do that because I might never get to it the other thing is um, I'm gonna have to figure out how to instead of having symlinks for bin files it's gonna have to write a batch script that copies all the arguments and calls node with the or whatever, it's going to suck. It's going to be weird and rough. Um, but fortunately, in NPM 1.0, there's really only a few cases where there's going to be that kind of fork, you know? So yeah. it's, it's basically just for, for loading in bins and for... Um, uh, that's about it, actually. I mean, the, the link command won't work. Right, right. You'll have to actually install stuff. <sighs> I wonder if there's another way to do link... Because it's kind of important for development. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't see how we would be able to support it, though. Well, I mean, the other the other way to do link is you do like get submodules or something, and you just fucking deal with it. Oh, it's so painful. I know it's so painful. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. I know. Yeah. Tell me about it. I, so I, I just um, I just abstracted out the uh, mini match program. 
from npm, which is like npm's little glob thing that it uses for parsing npm ignore files. Mm -hmm. And um, I was really excited the other night. I, I got it passing uh, every one of the the bash glob tests, mm -hmm. which I mean they're they're super clever. So I got that all working, and I'm, I'm probably going to replace that in in Node glob or have figure out some kind of options that you can use Node glob without having to compile anything, which will be great. Because it's such a it's such a little convenient program and and a lot of people use it, but it's such a pain in the ass to compile because it it's just because it has some C plus plus in it. You know what I mean? That mm. makes it awful. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but like so, Minimatch depends on this other thing. It keeps an LRU cache, so that's another library. And I can't use just regular dependencies in npm itself because everything has to be bundled so that you can download and install it. And I had this awful DOA release because uh, Git submodules didn't actually pull down everything. They're just yeah, super awful. Good. It's weird. Well, and also, like, with Git submodules, right, like, it's going <laughs> to... The submodule, like, you have to forcibly update it every time. So if you're developing... If you're, like, developing a local library that you depend on in three other libraries, you're going to have to check everything in and then update all three of those libraries to actually be pulling the new one that you want. Yeah. Uh, which is... Awful. I mean, like, and that's actually more painful than just pushing a new release to NPM for development and then updating all of all of the modules inside of there as well. I don't know. Right. This is why I don't deal with that. Like, half of, more than half of all my stuff is set up with Link. Because so much of my code is just relying on other modules that I either wrote or that I have a fork of and I, and I like, regularly fix bugs and I push, so... Yeah, and every time I think that I can get away with just like pulling one in, I end up having to kill that and and cloning it and forking it and all that. Like I thought that I was just going to be able to like use this your sax parser the other day, and I was like, oh, I can't just write to this like a stream. Fuck, I'm gonna have to write a stream interface now. <laughs> then, so I forked it and pulled it down and set it up with Link and wrote a stream interface. Dude, you know I I wrote that before there was such a thing as the stream interface. I I thought so as well. Yeah, and and pretty much like. When we were first talking about the stream interface, um, I remember back when we were when like JSGI was kind of a thing, <laughs> um, and we were like, "Oh, you know, what would be better is just using streams and then pushing stuff through or whatever, and 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 using events events." Um, around that time, I was like, "Oh, this will be great for that sax parser I wrote. I should totally do that." Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, the sex parser is nice. Like, I've been using it. I mean, it's it's weird to think about parsing the way that you have to think to parse with the sax parser, but that's not, like, a specific to your implementation thing. That's just a sax parser thing. Um, and also, like, the stream interface is weird, right? Because it... Essentially, like, you you pipe to it, and then it will... Like, it is just a valid sax parser itself. So you can just kind of pipe data to it. But you can also listen for the data if you want to pipe it out to another thing afterwards. Um, so there's this weird duplexing that happens, but the crazy oh, thing weird. is, that so, so the so the thing you wrote, I didn't actually I didn't actually read through that patch carefully yet. I just yeah, kind of yeah. saw that you added a create stream, and I was like, woohoo! Yeah, it's so a, I mean, it, so it has to be its own object, right? It can't be the parser object because the parser object that you wrote uh, needs to work in places that aren't Node, so it can't do stuff like you know require streams. Honestly, uh, I don't think anybody is using it outside of Node. Well, the, uh, it's it's okay because <laughs> I mean, it works anyway. <laughs> so um, so basically, I like. I, I create the stream object, I create a write method that calls write on the parser, and an end method that does the right thing for end. And then I just have this giant list um, of things that I need to wrap. And essentially I define a getter for them, and then 
that ends up so so like say when, when you set on closed tag or on open tag with any of that stuff, it puts a little wrapper function on parser that calls an emit on the stream for that event as well as as well as calls uh, the the function that you passed in to set. So it still works like the normal parser works. Um, so there's like a little bit of hoop jumping that you have to go through with getters because of the way that you set properties uh, on sax parsers. But it's nice. It's nice. It ended up working out really well. Well, that's cool. And for debugging, it's really nice because you can just be like, um, all right, I just want to know all of the open tags when they happen, but I don't want to like replace any of the parser logic. You can just do stream.on open tag, and then you'll see all the nodes that come up. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I don't know why I decided to go with just like object methods, but it seemed like that would probably be faster or something. It probably was faster. It probably is faster. Um, and also like you, the way that you want to do parsing with, with with like that kind of a sax parser where you have these really fine grain on methods is that you really do want to overload the logic for on tag every time that a new event happens. So it makes sense to not be using like once calls and then adding back the once caller using like the normal event emitter pattern wouldn't work very well when you're writing a parser. Um, it's really only like the on event stuff is really only useful when you're debugging. Um, right. Uh, so yeah, I, the, I actually like the way that that works. Also that sax parser, uh, the, at the time when I wrote it, event emitter was mostly in C. Ooh, okay. Um, it's, it's since been moved almost completely out into JavaScript except for the constructor function and only so that, oh god, I forget exactly what, I think it's the process object is a, is an, so that the process object can be an instance of the emitter. Okay. Event emitter, and there's like some obscure area where it's still using the the C event emitter function, but I think I think Ryan has pretty much admitted at this point that that was just a, a huge mistake. Um, it should just be in JavaScript. Yeah, yeah, I think it is right. Like, I mean, there's there's well, all, an of, all of the methods are. It's just a little bit of there's a little bit of setup function. The the function itself, like if you do event emitter dot two string, you'll see native code and braces. Right, right, right. It's good stuff. All right. What's the what's the next thing? Yeah, we're we're rambling. On the agenda. Yeah, we're rambling. Yeah. What's the so, next thing uh, speaking of event emitters and code that Michael wrote, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> there's this uh, HTTP client rewrite. So, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we like ever since. So so uh, back up a little bit. The current HTTP client. Uh, the last time that it was sort of rewritten at all was for this agent code that Ryan put in that basically implements uh, pooling by default. Um, actually, pooling no matter what. You can't really opt out of this pool object. You can just create a new pool for every time that you want to do a call. Um, he wrote that right before the 04 release. It was like one of the last things that kind of went in. And when it was sort of working enough is when we decided to ship. Um, and I think we, well, then, no, it was, it was that and also rewriting the module system. Rewriting the module. Well, no, no, no. But we did. We didn't rewrite the module system, right? Like you added support for the way that we want to do things, but you left all the support in for the old shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was still backwards compatible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this actually like replaced all of this API. And, and at first, he tried to write a little shim for the old API, um, and then ended up like ditching that and just pasting in the old code for the old API for the yeah. client. Uh, oh man, I crazy. That, that that did not yeah. work. 
Yeah, yeah. And and like and so we found a whole lot of bugs in it. And one thing that I realized as well when I was doing this rewrite is that all of the tests use the old interface, or almost all of the tests use the old interface. So even a lot of our tests aren't hitting the the, the new agent code. And um, we, we like when you look through that code, it's really hard to reason about. And a lot of like there's a lot of mixing of concerns, right? So like the agent should just handle pooling, but the agent actually also sets up the entire logic of hooking up the HTTP parser to the client request object and then emitting a client response object and all that shit. So um, we we talked really early on uh, about wanting to redo that, like at least break things out and make them a little bit more sensible and trying to figure out a way out of this cycle call. So if you look at the old code, it's just like lots of recursive calls into this cycle function that sort of pops things off of the queue and whatnot. And um, it's re it's a really weird call because it, it handles all of this weird state checking. Um, and and the, the, the pool does a whole lot of work to recycle closed socket objects. So it, it, you know, it doesn't have to do with this call to get a new file descriptor, but it does have to reopen it and do a new TCP handshake. Like, it's not like when you use pooling, you opt in to keep alive. Because by the normal mode, uh, when you use keep alive, the socket connection is going to stay open, and you're going to have to explicitly call close on it to get node to exit normally. Um, so that's like that's like kind of an, an important difference between uh, keep alive and close normally. So um, I've, I've been thinking about redoing sort of a lot of this stuff for a while. And then when I was on the BART a few weeks ago, I thought about how the agent should look. And I just sort of sat down and just wrote the agent object. Um, and it looked really nice. And one of the things that I realized when I was doing it was that I was like, okay, a lot of our bugs tend to be in um, a socket has an error or a socket gets closed. And there's some sort of weird state after the fact um, that we don't clean up or we don't really understand properly. And when we reuse it, it breaks. And so I decided, okay, screw it. We're not going to recycle closed socket objects anymore. Like this isn't worth it. Um, and then when I, when I did that, when I just said, okay, if, if, if a socket's ever closed and if it gets an error, it'll close. Um, if I take it out of the pool, um, why don't I also just close sockets when there's no pending requests? Um, and then we can opt into using keep alive by default. So that's where um, you're under load. Um, you're actually going to get like a huge performance gain uh, because we can do keep alive by default. And then when you're not under load, it's just going to take a little bit longer to set up some of these connections, like like microseconds longer to set up some of these connections. And who cares because you're not under load; it doesn't matter. Um, right. And also there was a, a huge amount of restructuring. So um, this was really nice because it meant that all of the socket pooling code is really contained in just this one object. There's no cycle call anymore. When you add stuff to it and when certain events happen, it knows to update itself and, and cycle and all that kind of stuff. There's no, you don't need to call into a thing that's always doing that. And basically all that happens is that um, in now the client request is an on socket call. So that on socket call happens whenever it gets a new socket. And then instead of there, it sets up the parser and all of that's contained. And there's only one call that ever refers to the pool, which is that it emits this free event um, when you're using keep alive. When, when it knows that the socket was using keep alive and it's going to keep it alive, um, and now it's kind of removed all the parsing uh, code on the socket. It just calls this free event, which is great. Um, and also there was, a, there was a lot of other weird problems with the old request stuff. So so now we, we when when we did the when Ryan did the the rewrite for the agent, he also added this new interface called http.request. And there's also a convenience method called http.get. And 
that returns a client request object immediately. And that client request object, until you exhaust the pool length, has a socket object attached to it. Um, but then once you hit the, the max pool length, um, it won't have a socket object attached to it. And in fact, like there's no event when it gets a socket. So if you want to call specific things on the socket, like you want to set a timeout or you want to set a socket keep alive specifically, uh, you can't really do it reliably once you hit the pool limit. You have to opt out of pooling entirely. So now the client request object has a bunch of methods on it that actually defer calling that method until later when the socket call happens, um, if it hasn't happened already, and until that socket is connected if it isn't already. So it'll happen now if there's a socket or later in the future if it is. And now there's like a, a there's a consistent socket method that always happens after next tick after you create a request. Even if you even if you're not using pooling actually. Like even if you now when you set agent false, you don't use the client pooling at all in the rewrite. Um, you just get a socket immediately, but we actually defer the event for socket until after next tick just to make the interface consistent. Right. Right. Yeah, but it's benchmarking really well. We pass all the tests. The The old client API interface is now actually just a shim to the new one, so all the tests touch the new code. Um, a few people who have had issues with the with the older uh, HTTP client have been testing it and saying that it's great, so we're hoping to get this in like this week. Awesome. So, um, you know, this, this whole thing kind of reminds me that, like, HTTP is really, it's like one of these classic cases where it seems like a pretty small problem. And you think, mm -hmm. oh, I can fit, I can fit both these two concerns into one object. And it's like, you know, a thousand lines of code later, you realize that that was a bad move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and like, I just love, like, I mean, I've been, I, I, I got into Node really early on. And a lot of the first stuff that I ever worked on in core was debugging problems with, the, with HTTP and with the parser. And this is when, like, me and Ryan found bugs like, oh, wow, content length means something totally different if it's a head request. And it turned out that there was, like, this really low-level assumption in the parser that said, like, content length always means this consistent thing. And there was a huge rewrite that he had to do on the parser to get rid of that on head requests. And there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that. As soon as you think that you're safe with a certain set of assumptions, you find out that that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, really especially head requests are just super magic. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a lot of other stuff, other weird stuff in the old agent code too, we're dealing with WebSockets. So, like WebSockets are really important to Node because it's one of the major use cases for, for using Node.js. And um, so there's this upgrade event that you get when a WebSocket call is going to happen. And it means that this connection is going to stay open for a long time. It means that you can't reuse it, you can't actually do HP Keep Alive on it. Um, there's yeah, all like these it's, it's taken over. That socket right, is right. busy. Yeah, yeah. And and this event happens like like at a weird point <laughs> for for you to be trying to deal with it. And and in the old code, that event would happen on the agent. It would not on the client request. Which is a fucked up place to try and deal with that. Um and now now what we do, which is so much nicer, um, is that um so if you, if you didn't have a handler on upgrade, it would actually close that connection because if you don't have a way to, to actually handle a WebSocket request, then, then we just need to close that connection down. Um, there's nothing that we can do with it. Uh, and so we still do that check, and we can do that check on client request, but also we emit this event. Um, we emit this event called uh, agent remove. So that's like an event that will that the agent is always listening to that goes if this ever happens uh, take this socket like out of the pool entirely, 
Um, like stop trying to pull it. So that's really nice. So now like automatically, if you handle these upgrade events, those won't be counted against the normal HTTP client pooling because you could really easily exhaust the client pool limit with, with those uh, WebSocket requests. They're going to stay open like indefinitely. Um, right. Yeah. There's a lot of new niceties in the new code. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really exciting. It's kind of it's kind of interesting too how like you know as as Node sort of matures, um, the the guy who wrote the the request the like nice HTTP client requesting library is now the guy who knows everything about how to write an HTTP client. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. Like uh, like everybody sort of. Has become yeah, the right. expert in whatever their first node program was. That's true. That's true. I, I actually thought that a lot more people understood the HTTP code um, at this point, and and I think like Matt Rennie knows it pretty well, and Paul Corner knows it pretty well. But Ryan sent out this call to like all the committers. It was like, who can review this code? And I was really surprised at how many people were just like, nobody knows how the HTTP stuff works. <laughs> and I was like, well, the, the agent code, the the, the the previous agent code was like really hard to reason about, like really, really hard to read and reason about. Um, so I get why maybe they didn't figure that out because I tried to figure it out multiple times before I realized that like this is just a weird code base and it, it just does, it just doesn't behave the way that you think that it should. Um, I read it enough to know that agent false makes it work. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't consistently. No, not like, consistently, but it makes it work like at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're. <laughs> It's crazy the amount of extra overhead that you go through when you do agent false because in the old code, like because all of the all the code that set up the parser on the client, the, the client request object was in the agent. You couldn't just go, don't use agents anymore. Like that's where all the fucking parser setup is. So right. what agent false does is it creates a new agent object for every single request, and so and it's doing like these crazy recursive cycle calls anyway, and and all this extra code is running and all these objects are being created that you don't need. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, it's it, it was for npm, right? npm slow, like who cares? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. It's it's really more important to be consistent there. And what would happen is like you would you would try to install a package, and that package would have you know five dependencies, and each of those would have three dependencies, and so now you're trying to download like what is that five and like twenty things, right? Mm -hmm. Twenty one things, and the agent code would like. It did something. It did something weird. Where if I if I didn't set agent false, it would open up like four sockets and then try to reuse them. Um, also, because they were all going to the same server, it did something weird. And like, it just it wasn't good. Like CouchDB would end up closing. Like it would open up a connection and then not do anything with it for a while. Or you know, halfway through a download, something would break. And <laughs> yeah, there's it got a little bit better. If you if you if you. Dive into that code right now and set, you know, and, and remove that agent false. It does actually work with like the latest zero dot four, but yeah, yeah. No, I think it was like oh four three or oh four four. Somebody found this really bad bug where like if you exhaust the pool limit in a tight loop before next tick, um, it like it just shuts down. <laughs> like it just like nothing would run. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was uh, I, I found that people were like, yeah, I try, I do npm install something. And it just stops, like, and I'm back at the command prompt. There's no, like, exits with a zero error code. Program's over. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I thought it was kind of funny because so one of the guys that uh, has been using the the new my, my branch basically uh, with the fixes in it uh, is this guy who 
he's he's been trying the performance test against uh, this server of his, and and um, and the client was just breaking all the time. And I was like, well, here, here's this client shouldn't break, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, well, at, at this certain limit, I get these errors consistently. And we're like, dude, well, that that's like you're exhausting some kind of handler limit somewhere, and it's not accepting connections anymore. And it turned out that, like, that was his server's limit, not <laughs> not on his local system or a node anymore. And he oh, was nice. like, okay. And he was like, okay, this is great, because now I'm, like, actually hitting the thing that I wanted to, to display. And and the, the, the thing that he ended with was actually – this just a, like this is great because I can bring this back to all the people that I convinced to use Node, <laughs> who are now like it doesn't work. <laughs> and I was like, okay, now I feel like I did a really good thing. <laughs> this guy's not gonna get beat up at his work for picking Node. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. But yeah, hopefully that'll land this week. Um, cool. Cool. Ryan, Ryan's really. Gung ho about getting it in. So, yeah, I was. Uh, it's it's really fun. All the, it gets kind of dull. I've noticed that we 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 sort of have this like interesting cycle in in the Node community where like, I mean, there's always master, you know, and development's always happening on master. But like, when we don't have an actual unstable release that is like pending and imminent, the the activity on master is so much slower, you know, and we're all kind of just working on on focusing on like cleaning up bugs in 0.4 or whatever. And there's a lot of things we start on and we're like, okay, yeah, this is a problem. We know we need to fix it, but we can't do it without changing stuff. So we can't do it yet. And then the minute that the minute that 0.5 hits and opens up and it's like, okay, we're, we're doing stuff now, there's this massive flurry of activity. I mean, it was very, it was very similar around 0.3. Well, and I mean, we, we had talked really early on about no changes in lib for 05. Um, and we, we already kind of started to not do that. We started to add a few really nice things and fix a few bugs and stuff like that uh, already. And then... I thought, they, I, thought it was just, I thought it was just no changes in lib until we have libuv. <sighs> no, like we, we had talked about it on the list where like maybe we should just wait, make, make the 05 cycles really short until we get like this underlying part stable, ship in 06 and then immediately land lib stuff in 07. Like we had talked about doing that. And I, I think we kind of threw it out the window, um, especially like the HTTP client rewrite is probably the biggest code change that'll go into lib. Um, and what it really is, yeah, like, I, I've been, Ryan, I've been, Ryan is like really sick of fielding bugs about it and, and, and hearing <laughs> about how it's broken. And like we were like, uh, you, you and him were up for my bachelor party and we were all up in Marin and I was like, no, it passes all of the tests and the old API now is just a shim on the new API, so all the tests use the new thing. And Ryan was like, yeah, we need to get that in. Like, like that just has to land. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he didn't Yeah, I've, I've been landing all kinds of changes in lib. I mean, not all kinds. Like, <laughs> not, not tons of stuff, but I, I definitely was not under the impression that that was not allowed. Yeah, I, th I think, like, um, after we finish this, what I'll do, what I'm actually going to put forward is uh, a couple patches to remove... Um, deprecated stuff like remove HTTP.cat because um, that's that's like throwing a deprecation warning for the whole last release cycle. Um, yeah, everything that was deprecated in 04 should be gone. That's that's also why um, it's it's a bigger change than you think though because like we're we're not we're past the the easy deprecation stuff. Like a lot of a lot of this stuff is actually um, we use it in our tests a lot. Like there's there's like maybe ten tests that use HTTP.cat. Um, oh, that's they would have to get yeah they would all have to get updated, um, so I mean that's like the majority of the the code change is just going to be in tests. 
So I should probably mention um, it. It seems like we may have lost Substack. We've been we've been soldiering on. Yeah, but, we've been trying uh, to get him back. Like, there's been background chatter that we've been trying to ignore and just keep going with the podcast. But I think that we lost him. He yeah. runs Linux or something, I think, and Skype is just broken for him. <laughs> <laughs> what are these people doing? Like, when when are we just going to be able to have? I, I want to start like a foundation called One MacBook per Developer. <laughs> It's sort of like one laptop per child, except way more expensive. But it's okay because there's a lot more develop. There's a lot more children than developers. So like, I think it's at least a ten to one difference. We should be able to figure out a way to get a MacBook for every programmer in the world. Yeah, I mean, like, like here's the thing. Uh, my tolerance for technology not working is really low for stuff that's not the code that I'm writing. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. things, I'm things like my phone and my iPad and even my laptop. Like they need to just work and not like ha- have me required to dick around with them ever, because um, I have plenty of things that aren't working that are my code that I need to write into debug, and I can't be worrying about like the operating system. <laughs> I think at, when I was younger, I used to have a lot more tolerance for that kind of stuff. I mean, I, and and the thing is, I actually I actually run an Android phone for this reason because like I don't really care about Angry Birds and various apps and stuff, but I do need Google Talk to work. And it just works on Android, mm. you know. But yeah, yeah I, I, I totally hear where you're coming from with the the iPad and the and the MacBook and stuff. Like back when I didn't have any code of my own to maintain, it was kind of fun to like you know dick around with my phone all the time or my my weird computer. Yeah, I mean, I grew up when Linux was really hard to install, and, and in fact, uh, when it became too easy for me, I was like a big FreeBSD guy. I was like, the shit needs to be hard, um, and that's like how I learned, you know. Uh, Dude, I, now I my tolerance is so Solaris low. On <laughs> it runs Solaris on a laptop? Yeah. He <sighs> developed on Solaris. I mean, it was a Solaris kernel hacker guy working on something at That Oracle. makes sense because, like, I mean, when the operating system is your code that you're debugging, like, you kind of need to run that. <laughs> he said it was pretty painful. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I mean, nothing works that you actually want on a laptop. <laughs> I don't even want to think about like joining wireless networks on the Solaris. Oh God! Oh, it's so it's painful even on Linux, and Linux does a really good, good effort. Yeah. yeah, we're in the weeds here. There's some there's some conferences and things going on this summer. Yes, so no knockouts coming up. Uh, put on by uh, Visnu and um, oh man, I always forget the other guy's name. Jared Sweeterhout. Jared, yeah, yeah. Visnu and Jared. I think that's how you pronounce the last name, but I I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. This new is this up on Twitter and uh, purveyor of lots of amazing buttons. And uh, yeah, he, <laughs> yeah he, creates, the, the, he has buttons with his own avatar on them, and then he also has buttons that have Ryan's avatar on them. That like you know, it was you priceless Ryan seeing that avatar. First, what Ryan like, changed his avatar now because those buttons got kind of popular and like people were wearing them. <laughs> he was getting freaked out. I remember the first time that he ever saw one, and the look on his face was just priceless. Like, he was so freaked out. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was somebody it was somebody he knew though who was wearing one, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's, and, that's and kind of a failure. Like, I, I I was telling I was telling this new he needs to just go into the mission, <laughs> go to some like burritos shop or something, and put just like a basket of those buttons there with like a sign that says "free take one," yeah. and then. One day, 
Ryan will be just in a store or something, and there'll be some random person there wearing it <laughs> that he's never met. You know, and then he could be like, who are you? How do you have this button? Where did you get it? And they'll be freaked out too because they won't actually know. It's, I mean, it doesn't actually look that much like him. I think that, like, Disney's original plan, as he described it to me, was that he was going to, like, invite Ryan to something, and before he, Ryan got there, he was going to give everybody a button to put on, and then Ryan was going to walk in, and everybody was going to be wearing the button, and he was just going to be freaked the fuck out. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is how you know who your true friends are. They go out of their way <laughs> to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, no knockout is not about buttons. Uh, no, it's not. Yeah, so um, I was a judge last year, and it was phenomenal. Like, there were, I think, 100 teams, and the teams were between one and, and four people all across the world. People did some really amazing applications um, over the two-day contest. Uh, who, what were some of the winners last year? I know that the the heat map won, won uh, which was this awesome app that um, basically you could configure it so that some percentage of the people that went to your website would get this extra bit of JavaScript, and it would, um, over WebSockets, or just using Socket.io, so it had all the fallback logic, would say where the cursor position was. And then you, as the, the website owner, could look at a heat map that was like a real-time heat map of where people's cursors were on your website. Yeah, that, that was really, really slick. There was also, yeah. um, oh, God, uh, what was that one with the pixels? Oh, yeah, that was rad. So, like, basically, it required a lot of people to be playing it in order for it to be cool. But, like, I think all of the judges at one point were all playing it. Um, so, uh, it was, like, just a giant thing of, like, uh, large pixels, right? And then you were a single pixel that you could move around. And then shapes would come up. And everyone had to sort of get in line to create the shape by the time that the countdown happened. Um, and then it would move oh, you on. Know, and you know what was awesome? It kept getting more complicated. There was a lot of metagames in it. Uh, so then the, the basic, the way that the game worked, just to spell this out a little bit more, is you, you'd be like a dark cursor, and then your arrow keys would move you around on the grid. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, there was a lot of metagames. Like, I, I, was, I was playing tag one time for, like, half the day, and I, I posted on Twitter, like, I'm just playing tag. And, uh, God, I can't remember the name of it, though. What, what was the name? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. There, there, yeah, there was also the the let's fuck up the shape later game. Like people would get in line for the shape, and then right before the countdown was done, they'd move out of the way just to fuck with people. <laughs> oh, dude, that's great when you're the uh, um, when you were the center block of the castle. <laughs> yeah, and like, and the thing is, like, oh yeah, so the, the castle shape was like this this circle that was like a, a five by five square of pixels, and then one right in the middle. So first of all, it's really hard because everybody wants to be the middle square. And there's only one middle square. And if anybody was in the clear areas, it wouldn't count as a, as a castle. So you wouldn't get the points. But if you did end up being the middle square and then move away right at the zero, time, zero seconds or whatever, like right before the, the timer dings, I mean, you, you would definitely piss off like everybody else who had you know, given up their, their shot at fame to be part of the wall. <laughs> that's um, pretty awesome and, and also like there was a lot of just like messing with people like they'd be in the middle square and like three seconds left they'd start moving around just to fuck with people and then get back in the middle like it was funny <laughs> yeah some great uh, stuff um, yeah yeah so that's Swarmation, Swarmation was the name that's of it that's what it's called yes Swarmation, Swarmation they want to you were a swarm of pixels yep 
They won a bunch of the awards. I think, yeah, they, they won the overall award. So the just to, to sum up, if anybody's not yet heard of it, basically the, the idea of Node Knockout is it's, it's something like Rails Rumble, um, where you have teams of people. It's teams of, what, one to four? Yep. I think. Um, so you have teams of people. doesn't matter where you are, but it starts, then there's 48 hours to write an app in Node. And then the apps get judged. Um, last year, I was actually, I actually had, and NPM was a sponsor last year, which was totally weird because it's not like I gave them any money. I didn't even actually have a job, I don't think. So <laughs> there was no money yeah. to give. Yeah, uh, this, this new is great about that. This new will like uh, help promote things by like making you a sponsor. Like Node, uh, NodeComp Summer Camp is a sponsor as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and and a lot of that is like this new is also helping me out with Node Come Summer Camp. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that guy's that guy's really really good, uh, really helpful. So is, so is Jared. The, I mean, the two of them really. I, I don't. I think they're just doing like uh, consulting and stuff still, right, with their their company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this like isn't a profit making enterprise for them. This is just like in their own time, they really wanted to do something rad for Node and yeah, just together, which is really cool. So uh, you know, people people descend on the the joint headquarters in San Francisco and uh, spend the weekend there hacking. You don't have to be at the joint headquarters to be involved, though. Like, I mean, there were no. yeah, yeah. There, there were people who descended year, in their uh, apartment, and there were a lot. There were a lot of different headquarters all around the world, which is pretty cool. This year, there's probably going to be a bunch of people at the No Jitsu offices in uh, in New York City as well. Yeah, well, I think they're uh, what, what are or they're that? renting some space. Well, I, I think it's just going to be in. Um, there's a co-working space that uh, Charlie Robbins, the the CEO of uh, Nojitsu, was involved in setting up called General Assembly, and I think they're they're all going to be piled in there. Um, well, isn't that isn't that also where Nojitsu like where they work? I think technically that yeah, that is their their office, but um, they also have a San Francisco headquarters uh, in Marac's apartment, and. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And but yeah, yeah. Um, there's also one in Japan. Like the people who who are putting together a Japanese Node conference uh, ran a space there last year, and I think they're going to run it one again this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, I know that Co-op in Berlin does a space. Um, apparently, there was also a space in Dresden, which is interesting. Um, I met one of the guys who was running that when I was in Dresden last year. Nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. So yeah, actually, uh, like, do you remember the BitTorrent one? Like there was a BitTorrent competitor. Um, God, what was it? It was some kind of like crazy implementation of BitTorrent in Node with like a website attached to it and stuff. Like that was his entry. Um, that dude was in uh, Dresden. Wow. So the the thing that's that was kind of um, and and this is a this is a criticism that people have had of Rails Rumble as well. Is that like. A lot of times, the apps that win aren't the apps that are the most clever or interesting, but the ones that look the best and kind of feel the slickest. So, uh, one of the one of the kind of like quips about Node Knockout is it really should have been called Socket IO Knockout, since that was kind of like it was like jQuery Socket IO. I made it pretty. I win. Well, I think that nobody so I think, like, I think like this time we're actually talking about doing like a tech category. Well, uh, uh, look, so here's here's the thing, though. Like, Node makes 
making these real-time apps so easy that you can do them in a two-day contest. Whereas, like, if you were going to build a real-time application for a contest before, I don't know what you could have possibly used to, to do it in that amount of time. Like, most real-time applications that are out there took a lot of engineering effort over a long period of time. And Node and Socket.io specifically just make it made it easy enough for people to do this in a short contest. So it was very impressive. And I think that, like... Um, especially during that first contest where it was like so many people first using Node and getting into it and then doing these amazing real-time apps where you're not used to seeing real-time apps. Um, I think that like really, that's why so many of those won. I think this year we're a little bit more jaded about real-time apps. We're a little bit like, like we've seen a lot of them. We get it. We know that Node can do this like really well. Um, I don't think that it's going to be as heavily um, influenced by like everything has to be real-time in order to be impressive. I don't know. There's, you know, it's it's hard to maintain that kind of like just detachment from what we're used to because um, when you work with Node all the time and you work with Node apps all the time and you talk to Node developers all the time, yeah, I mean, real time, whatever. Like, obviously, you're going to make your app real time. Why wouldn't you? You have to go out of your way and not use Node to make it not real time. <laughs> you know, and especially with Socket IO, it's so trivial. You just Obviously, you're going to do it real time, but you know, not very long ago, and and still for a lot of people who who write a lot of code, you know, the way that you would make a real time application was really really hard. So you'd have to have like, I mean, if you're like a PHP developer, how do you even do that? I mean, you you got to be running, you got to be running basically like the 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 Flash Flex, one way that it's done a lot of times. I shouldn't say the only way or what you have to do, but one way that it's tip, that is often done is you have like a Flex server running on a separate port. Than your PHP server. So your PHP server then de deploys uh, a Flash app, which does some socket communication in the background to your to your Flex server running side by side with Apache or proxied through Apache. And then you got to do deal with like cross domain restrictions. There's an XML file. There's ACL headers. Like, man, that stuff is hard. It's really really hard. Or you do long lived connections to a PHP server, which is just beyond painful. I mean. Push connections with with PHP is awful. I don't think that you would. I don't see how you would be able to get away with that. You can do it. Like like how many how many servers would you need? How many like Apache processes would you need to hold open all those connections? I guess you could use the Apache non-blocking mode, but you're still like running a fucking PHP like process for every single one of those connections. That's oh, crazy. Each connection is ridiculously heavy, and and the PHP. So what you end up doing though is you have to structure your code. I mean, this is like. Some of the earliest comment service servers would would do it this way, right? So you would you would just basically have a PHP function that didn't end until it had some data, right? And after thirty seconds, the um, the PHP runtime would kill it. So your uh, you would write your JavaScript so that it would make an XHR request, and if it times out, it would just try to make another one, and then you had to like juggle your own sequence IDs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, sequence IDs are a good idea anyway, but boy, that was that was kind of a pain. Yeah, that sounds painful. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, doing it with Socket IO is definitely a lot easier. But there's, I still see on on you know on the uh, what's that what's that site that does the messages the Twitters. <laughs> what people are people, are, uh, people sometimes go on there and they and they they twit about their experiences using at Node.js. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about now. You see what I'm doing there? I'm being, I'm being ironically unaware of technology. 
I think uh, I think we might be circling the drain here. I don't. I can't. What else? Yeah. Would we yeah. Miss? Um, oh, so no, oh. no uh, summer camp. Yes. So um, I'm I'm doing another conference because I don't. I just like having lots of extra work. Um, <laughs> You're too bored <laughs> sitting around yeah. with your job and your other, you know, sitting around my job and rewriting node clients and blah blah. blah. Um, but no, I so like a a few years back, not a few years back. It was last fucking year. Uh, last year, I ran this conference uh, called Couch Camp that was really fun. Uh, it was for Couch TV, and I had a lot of help. Um, from Couch One, my employer at the time, and a lot of people there. And we also had a, a full-time event planner, uh, Megan Wilgenbush, who's great. But we uh, we had this amazing conference. Uh, we rented an actual summer camp for two days and went up there and stayed in the lodging and just like we really made like forward progress in the community. It wasn't just like a meetup where everybody kind of got to see each other. We really felt like we like pushed forward. Um, and after like doing NodeConf this year, um, I I loved the conference. I, I feel like I did a very good job and <laughs> and uh, lo- like lots of help from Chris Williams and other people who, who really made it great. Um, but at the end of it, like we really, there was a lot of knowledge sharing and a lot of people kind of standing up there and telling everyone like what they kind of wanted to hear, what they needed to hear about Node. But we didn't really like everybody sit down and get past some of the, the issues like in the community. We didn't, I didn't feel like we made a huge amount of progress in like identifying where we need to go in, in the module space, in the application space, and also in, in Node Core. We made a little bit of progress in Core because I set aside a room for a bunch of like the core contributors uh, to Node, and, and everybody kind of figured out a few things about streams, but we didn't make a huge amount of progress. Um, and so I really wanted to do that for Node. So um, I went and found a few sponsors, and there's still two sponsor slots left uh, if anybody wants a ticket. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, so I got together a few sponsors, and I definitely know a lot of that end of running a conference now about like you know getting money together from a lot of sources and, and about how to source things and deal with vendors and all that from running NodeConf. And um, got the same kind of summer camp, started selling tickets, and we we just recently sold out of the uh, the semi-private tickets. So um, you're going to have three meals a day. There's going to be and the meals are great actually at the summer camp. They do a really good job. Um, yeah, but, I heard a lot of really good things about it. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the meals are fantastic, and like, and and also, um, like, I mean, I heard a lot of good things about it from people other than you who weren't involved in setting it up. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, like, yeah, no, the the food is great. The camp, I mean, like, usually you'd think summer camp food, and it's just going to be a bunch of cans that they open and just kind of like heat up. But um, like, this is up in Marin. Like these these parents are like kind of rich and and kind of hippie, and really like want a lot of organic vegetables and, and stuff so like they make their own breads up there like it's great um but uh anyway so we we have these semi-private accommodations which are um they're they're like lodges with uh between two and five beds in a room and then so we have a bunch of those lodges and um significant others were allowed to come for free so you could bring your wife and your kids and people really really took advantage of this there's going to be a whole lot of like real community up there with people bringing their families but all the first lot of tickets that could bring significant others are now like gone because we're really close to budget. We have two more sponsor slots. So there are some tickets reserved for uh, the people who will use 
people who might want to sponsor and want their four tickets and also might want to bring a significant other based on the same kind of rate that we're getting other significant others. Um, but that's all of the, the tickets for semi-private lodging. But in the next few weeks, I will be putting up some tickets uh, for camping out. So if you bring a tent and a sleeping bag, you'll still get three meals a day. You'll still get, there'll be beer all day. Good beer. Cause I'm picky. Um, and <laughs> And uh, you'll still get trans transit up to the camp and everything. The only thing that you won't have is a bed. Uh, and these tickets will be pretty cheap. Um, and we're, we'll probably sell about 40 or 50 of them. So if you want to come and you want to bring a tent and a sleeping bag, you can come on up. And it'll be great. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or if you're interested in sponsoring, just you know, email me or whatever. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. The, the list of people to... coming. The list of people coming is like everybody that I wanted to have come, um, except for Felix. I wanted Felix to come, but he couldn't make it. So. Um, but yeah, pretty much everyone. I mean, uh, I'll be there. You'll be there. Marco uh, Rogers will be there. Ryan Dahl will be there. Uh, Daniel Shaw will be there. Um, what about is uh, um, uh, Substack James Halliday coming? I'm pretty sure he has a ticket. Um, if he doesn't have a ticket, he'll probably just buy the camp out ticket. So <laughs> he seems like the kind of dude who'd want to camp out, to be honest. So. <laughs> yeah, I, he's. Uh, I'm. I'm a little bit envious sometimes. I got to say. I mean, this kind of comes down to like a, a cultural difference in terms of like working for a working for a corporation with income and budgets and lots of business units versus working for a startup where nobody tells you what to do. Mm-hmm. There's definitely advantages to both. <laughs> yeah yeah well and also i I think no jitsu like they sponsored so they got four tickets and then they also went and like just bought four tickets so i think they may have a few extras and so if he really wanted a bed he could probably talk to them about getting <laughs> yeah 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 anyway um, but yeah yeah it, it should be really fun lots of great people are coming up um you see the the website is at uh nodeconf.com slash summercamp.html and uh, it's going to be really good. Yeah, the, the not, I think we're going to have like show notes or whatever, yeah. but uh, yeah. the, the Node Knockout website is um, nodeknockout.com Yeah, yeah. Well, and that is going to be on August 27th, I think, 6th and 27th. Yeah, yeah. And I think the uh, this is going to announce the winners uh, either right before or at Nodecom Summer Camp. So that'd be cool. Oh, really? Wow, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Yeah. So I think that about wraps it up. If interested. Oh, yeah. So uh, email you if interested in sponsoring. Got any, uh, got any last words? Anything we missed, do you think? No, I think we got pretty much everything. I don't know what happens in a week. I don't know. By, by, next, week, week. by, by next week, I should have up a... Uh, oh, 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 don't don't, don't give too much away, dude. Oh, okay, all right. All right. <laughs> by no, next I'm... week, awesome things will happen. Tune in yeah. next time for the exciting <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> Yeah, or just watch the regular email list and it'll be announced. <laughs> right. <laughs> what else is going on in the email list? Anything anything interesting these days? Uh, I think a lot of people are opinionated about a logo that I haven't really looked into. And 
Yeah. Otherwise it's just kind of the normal stuff. I keep getting, I keep getting pinged on Twitter about NPM not working on windows. I got to say like, I got to get on that soon. Yeah. I've noticed that that coming up a lot more too. Yeah. Yeah. There's another thread on the list about how people can't write callbacks and, um, they'll they'll learn, they'll grow. (laughs) But no, no, there's, it's good stuff. Yeah. Lots of good threads on the list right now. Oh, hey, there's a there's a no knockout Facebook page as well. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. They just that would require that. me opening Facebook in my in my browser. They my they tootled Twitter. it on the on the on the Twitter <laughs> on the tweeters. Um, yeah, the the node node underscore knockout is the Twitter account for it. So. Yep. Cool. All so. Right. I guess the 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 place to send comments or concerns or issues with this podcast is noteup at gmail.com. Yep. yep. Or you can uh, go go to the Twitter and give it a hashtag pound noteup. Yep. Good evening or good afternoon or good morning, whatever time that you listen to this podcast. Yes. Good night. Ha, 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 ha.